Father in heaven, we thank you for the fresh new day that you have given to us, and we are grateful that we can have the assurance from history and from the scriptures and from our own experience that you are going to be faithful to us through this day. We thank you for the anticipation that we have of future blessing because you have been uh, so good to us in the past. We pray that as we look at this subject today that we would be encouraged by the truthfulness of your word. May our Heavenly Father, we recognize that this is an area of study that uh, can push us in any direction. So give us discernment, give us wisdom as we study it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Couple preliminary uh, things that I want to mention. First of all, uh, and this may seem pretty trivial and pretty unobvious, but uh, the word archaeology is one of the few words that I know of that has three vowels right in a row. Did you notice that? That's pretty significant. Now, the reason I mentioned that is because Merle F. Unger, who was the uh, Old Testament professor at Dallas Seminary long before I ever got there, uh, and a, I think a graduate of uh, John Hopkins University, and anyway, an old, super-duper Old Testament scholar, he wrote a book on biblical archaeology uh, way back in the uh, early or late 1950s. Throughout the entire book, they misspelled the word archaeology <laughs> because they left out the first A, or excuse me, the second A, and they, they spelled it the way it sounds. You know, the A is silent. I, I don't know why, it's just the way it is. Now, couple things I want to mention. First of all, uh, a book that I have become aware of, and uh, Tim Velasco told me he had become aware of this book as well, and that is a book entitled Zondervan Handbook of Biblical Archaeology. Relatively new book. Uh, the interesting thing is Randall Price is the author as well as uh, Wayne House. I know both of these guys. I've sat down and talked to both of them for extended period of time. Uh, both of these men are uh, super scholars. <clears throat> you know, you know what I mean by super scholar. They live in a world up here and the rest of us are down here. But anyway, Randall Price has received an award from the nation of Israel because he is one of the few guides that has led uh, over a hundred tours to Israel, which it makes him, you know, just incredible. He's also done a tremendous amount of work on Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff of that nature. But uh, ask Doug about Randall Price. Doug and Randall Price were at Dallas exactly the same time. Uh, <coughs> Doug came to Utah and Randall Price went to Israel, but then that's another story. Now, <laughs> uh, one other interesting little ditty, and I'll be referring to this a couple times. Years and years ago, National Geographic was uh, a little bit more sympathetic to uh, Bible stuff than they are now. And uh, this dates me, all right? But here is a National Geographic from... <laughs> December of 19, well, you know how they used to say it, 19 and 68. Uh, no, actually 1958. Uh, it goes way, way back. Uh, when I was a student at Washington Bible College, I went down to the National Ge Geographic building, which was real close to the school, probably about six or seven blocks away. And the reason I picked up this particular volume is uh, first of all, it has a rather extensive uh, article on, uh, I think, the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it also has an interesting article, and this is in no way an endorsement, all right? Just a bit of information. It has a rather interesting article on 
what they call geographical twins a world apart. Did you ever hear of that? Yeah, that was taught quite a bit. Uh, they compare Salt Lake City to Israel. And it's quite interesting. There is the Jordan River. Here is a picture of caves. Only problem of it is the Jordan River flows, flows in the wrong it, direction. Everything's opposite, yes. <laughs> and here is, here is a picture of Utah Lake with uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, how many of you remember, those of you who have been around here for a long, long time, I remember, how many of you remember the old Saratoga, uh, the swimming place down on Utah? Yeah, some of us have been there. Uh, you remember those good old days? We'd go down and do the Ferris wheel and all. I think it's long gone, long gone. But anyway, if you care to look through this, uh, I have this copy. I also have this copy, but it is kind of interesting. Now, let's go ahead and, uh, and get started here and uh, see how much we can uh, cover for today. Uh, what I wanna do is just kind of do a little bit of an overview and then we're gonna specific uh, some of the things along the way. And admittedly, I thought this course would be about four weeks long. It might be a little longer than that. You know me. Turn on the buzzer, there it is. One of my personal favorite places in Israel, and I've been there five times, which is nothing, all right, is the Arbel. This is Mount Arbel, and right out there at the very tip uh, is a, a tremendous vista. And uh, the interesting thing about this vista is you can see where the buses go up that trail, and then there's just a little hiking trail up to the point. And uh, this is a picture looking out toward over the Sea of Galilee. You get up there and you just have an incredible panorama of all of the Sea of Galilee. You, you guys haven't been to Israel. How many of you have been to Israel? All right, none of you, all right? That's all right. This is, huh? Oh, you're right, she has. Uh, this is. I'm messing this Satan has fallen again into I think you need to press okay. Yeah. There, yeah, there you got it. Yeah. Are we back? Not yet. Not yet. Okay, now, let's try this again, all right? The Arbel, looking out over the Sea of Galilee, and this from the Sea of Galilee, looking back up toward the Arbel. The Arbel has no biblical significance at all, all right? It's just a great place to get a panorama. Where is the Arbel? Well, Tiberias is probably the largest city around the Sea of Galilee. Tiberius was uh, built commemorating Tiberius Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of Rome at the time. Capernaum or Capernaum is where Peter uh, lived and our Lord spent a lot of time up there. As near as we know from the biblical record, Christ never visited Tiberius, even though it was the largest city uh, of, of the area. Now, the interesting thing is the Arbel is situated right there where the arrow is, and that's where that big cliff is. Another couple shots of the Arbel. Just below the Arbel is a little town called Magdala. Who do you think came from Magdala? Mary, Mary Magdalene, right. And this is another picture of the Arbel. And this is a guy that visited the Arbel back in 1972. That's a long time ago. 40 years. I really did look that young. I had that much hair. 
But one other interesting thing about this is uh, I took my wife there five years later, and that's her standing on the R-bell, all right? Right there. And this is me standing on the R-bell the same year. Five years later, I went back. You notice I've got the same shirt. I finally threw away the shirt. But anyway, I did put on a different pair of jeans. But this is 1990. This is uh, 1995. I guess that's 30 years ago. Uh, that was such a great picture that uh, the company that I went with on a tour took this picture right here, and that guy standing right there up at the very top is, guess who? Yours truly. And they liked the picture so much. They liked the picture so much when they got their special little chart out, lo and behold, they put the picture right there, and that guy standing right up there at the top is, <coughs> I don't know. I talked to uh, I talked to people that made that anyway. All right, now let's uh, let's go on just a little bit further. Uh, let me give you a, a little bit of a history of Israel, and this is probably old hat to some of you, but anyway, the history of the Israel, particularly in the Old Testament, you have the patriarchs, then you have the judges, and then you have the monarchy. Uh, looking at it. The key events during the Old Testament era would first of all be in the Exodus, and we're gonna talk about that next week, and the captivity. And I have put dates where these events are. If we go to the next phase, one of the things we discover is that the patriarchs and the, uh, the uh, time that they were in Egypt is approximately 600 years, and then you have 400 years of the judges and the era of the, uh, the conquest, and then you have approximately 500 years. So the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 12 on roughly consists of approximately 1,500 years, which, uh, you know, we kind of squeeze the time out of it and read through, but that's that's all these events. Now, the question you have to ask is, does the Bible give us a comprehensive story of everything that happened? And the answer is no. God is concerned about just one thing, and that is the story of salvation as God is giving it to mankind and he tells us the whole history of that. Now, as we go on a little bit further, we discover that the patriarch era, approximately 120 to 150 years, then the sojourn in Egypt, then you have Moses and Joshua, these two. One is famous for the exodus from Egypt, the other is famous for the conquest of the land. The next era, is the period of the judges. I have listed all the judges that the book of Judges uh, mentioned. I have divided them into major judges and minor judges. Why would I divide them between major judges and minor judges? Anybody? Length of their term? Huh? Length of their term? Ken? Well, the amount of information that we have about them. There you go. Uh, all we have on the minor judges is mention. That's it. Their names are just mentioned. We have actual stories with the major judges. Does this mean the major judges are more important than the minor judges? Absolutely not. Just like the major prophets and minor prophets. There's not a more important, less important situation. It's just that we know more about them and their story comprises more information from scripture. When we go to the next phase, the era of monarchy, we have Saul, the first king, 
reigned 40 years, David 40 years, Solomon 40 years. After 120 years, the monarchy or the kingdom divides. And we have 10 tribes in the north, 19 total kings, nine dynasties. What do we mean by a dynasty? Nine different families, nine different families. And you'll notice all of them are evil, every single one of them. They're caught up in Baal worship. They're caught up in golden calf worship. That kingdom only lasted 120 year, 210 years. As far as the southern kingdom is concerned, dynasty, just one. And that is all of them are part of the family of David or descendants of David. 20 different kings, eight are good, 12 are evil. And notice the kingdom lasts 150 years almost longer because of God's goodness to them. And obviously because there's some good there. Now, when you look at the next step, what I want you to notice in a key event, it's only mentioned in one chapter in 1 Samuel, a key turning point in the nation's history is the Battle of Aphek. Uh, can anybody tell me the significance of the Battle of Aphek? All right, yes. The ark was stolen. The ark is stolen by the Philistines. And because the ark is stolen by the Philistines, they want, the nation of Israel wants a major change in the way things are. And so what they do is they move from a theocracy to a monarchy. A theocracy is where the spiritual leaders, the priests, are kind of running the show. A monarchy is where they say, we want a king like all the other nations. This is a crucial turning point in the nation's history. And so the Battle of Aphek or the Battle of Ebenezer, it doesn't matter. Uh, Aphek and Ebenezer just, you know, really close. But anyway, those, that's a very, very crucial battle. The other interesting thing that I want you to notice is that if we apply archeology span to the whole situation, and that's what we're gonna be studying, this era is the Bronze Age. These are categories that archeologists and historians have put to this era. It goes from prior to the time of Abraham to approximately the time when monarchy in Israel starts. The next era is the Iron Age. And this, of course, is from approximately the time when the monarchy begins through the balance. This is the part that we're going to be focusing on right here. When Scott Stripling was here, he kept mentioning Bronze Age, Iron Age. And it was probably a bit confusing to you. But when we categorize it like this, it helps us just a little bit to realize that there is a dividing line between them. Now, let me go on. Bronze Age, why do they call, probably when most of us were in school, because all of us are a little bit older than uh, whatever, we remember Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age. Why did they call them Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age? And the reason is because that's where tools, that's what tools were made of. That's what weapons were made of. Now, uh, the interesting thing about all of this is that when you apply the Bible to this, during the Bronze Age, according to archeologists and historians, you would have Moses, Abraham. During the Iron Age, you would have the divided nation of Israel. Does that make sense for everybody? So every now and then I may say Bronze Age, 
I may say Iron Age, and that's, and I'll, I'll come back to this so that we don't forget it. Now, admittedly, these are categories that historians have given these eras. It does not necessarily mean that the Bible gives it that. You understand that? It's not a biblical designation. It is a historian archeology span designation. The interesting thing about these two eras is that all of archeologists today give it these two designations. And when it comes to the Stone Age, they begin to speculate. In fact, from about the time of Abraham back into antiquity, everything is speculation as far as the dates are concerned. My wife and I visited the history uh, the Museum of Natural History this last week with some of our grandchildren and children. They have, my, my, most of my children are grandchildren are homeschooled, so this was just kind of a little field trip because they, uh, there was a display from the nation of Egypt. And as my wife is leaving, she passes the girl that uh, is taking the tickets and what did you say to the girl? That was very fascinating. Wasn't all of it true, but it was fascinating. <laughs> the reason she said it's not true is because they have a tendency to add a series of zeros after numbers. So, so what does your 3000 refer to? 3000 is BC, or the way that, the, BC, you've heard of BC, AD, BC before Christ, AD after death. You've heard that designation. They scrapped that designation. Now it is BC before the common era, BCE, as opposed to AD or what they call now CD, CE, common era. So before the common era, Common Era. So they're saying the Bronze Age started at 3000 BC. Well, yes. However, however, and they, say they the divide Stone it. Age, the they Age divide started. it early bronze, middle bronze, late bronze, and then they have Iron Age 1, Iron Age 2. And all of these designations fluctuate with the archaeologists. Archaeologists that are more sympathetic to the Bible will have different dates. Archaeologists that are not real sympathetic to the Bible will have a different set of dates. Uh, so just keep that in mind, all right? Now, you're probably saying to yourself, why bother studying archaeology? Well, a good way to understand this is Archaeology is, and this is what my Old Testament professor at Dallas used to say, archaeologists can serve as a handmaid to biblical truth. A handmaid. It is not the absolute category or category, well, you know the word I mean. Uh, it is not set in stone. That's, that's a dumb way to put it in it. What? Whatever. Uh, and admittedly, archaeology is a, I hate to use this word, but you'll get the idea. It is an evolving science. And guess what? Science 2022 is different than science 2020. Have you noticed that? Follow the science. Okay, we will. But the trouble is, science fluctuates from year to year to year, and I assure you, it fluctuates from person to person to person. Realize that. Science 1900 and science 2000 are as different as night and day. 
And the same is true when it comes to archaeology. Archaeology and the study of archaeology is only approximately 200 years old. And we'll see some of that here in just a little bit. Now, with all of this in mind, when it comes to the tools, the Bronze Age, bronze is stronger than copper. Iron is stronger than bronze. And the technique for metallurgy has been perfected over the years. And so that's, that's where we have all that. Now, after the Iron Age, you have the Stone Age. And by the way, the Stone Age, as many of you uh, are probably aware from way back in antiquity when you were in school, you have the Mesolithic, the Calcolithic, and all those different eras. That's all in the Stone Age. But uh, we're just categorizing the Stone Age as Stone Age, all right? The interesting thing is, remember, this is the designation of uh, historians. If you don't mind, we need to look into the Bible a little bit today, don't you think? So turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of Cain killing Abel. Now, this is early on. This is way, way back. When? We're not sure. 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Actually, 6,000 years ago. All right? The family tree of Cain looks like this. Here you have Adam and Eve. They have three sons. Do they just have three sons? Probably not. They probably have many, 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 many children, but the Bible only records the story of three sons. <coughs> you have Cain, you have Abel, who was killed by Cain, and then you have the line of Seth. This is the line God is going to start working through right here. But the line that we are interested in for right now is the line of Cain. And Cain, of course, has a series of descendants. But what I want you to know specifically is starting with verse uh, 20. Well, verse 19 of chapter 4. And Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. So you have Ada, Zillah. Some of you have probably never noticed this before. Verse 20, and Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. He's a herdsman. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Now, what you've got is Lemek, two wives, Ada has two sons, probably has more, but this is the only ones the Bible is recording. Zillah has two children, a son and a daughter. Notice, if you will, what happens. Jabel, farmer and herdsman. Musicians come out of this line. But notice, if you will, verse 22. As for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Now, that's interesting to me. Because historians will say, well, iron wasn't invented this early, and yet the Bible record gives us a record of the fact that metallurgy starts way back. Now, do we, have any, do we have a record of any of these things? Probably not. I had a handheld musket that I got at a garage sale probably about 20 years ago. 
And back when my children were still at the house, and I had, what I had to do was I had to finish it. I mean, it came and I had to put it together in pieces. So I kind of put it together, but then I got sidetracked and I stored it out in the garage because I didn't want any of my children to fuss with it. And guess what happened? I forgot all about it. Forgot all about it. And just six months ago, I was rooting through. This is what happens when you live in the same place for years and years and years. You're, you store things. And I was rooting through, and I saw this little box. So I opened the box up, and I had completely forgotten about the musket. What do you think happened to that musket? in the 20 years that I had it stored in the garage. It all rusted out. It all rusted out. Utah, dry climate, you know? May I suggest to you that the bronze and the iron of a thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, it's all rusted out because the techniques of metallurgy have changed dramatically. One of the things that I think is very, very important for us to realize, this is just my personal opinion, all right? You're welcome to yours. It's, this is mine. I don't think men, mankind, is getting smarter. <laughs> I think we are able to build on technology. But I think people back in antiquity were pretty smart. And for them, particularly the line of Cain, to come up with some of this stuff was pretty ingenious. There were herdsmen's, there were musicians, and then there were people that worked with metal. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is that in the text of Scripture, if you will look a little bit further in this chapter, it tells us <coughs> at the very end of the chapter, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you have the line of Cain and his descendants, what is being left out with the line of Cain? A relationship with God. Now, do they know about God? I think they probably do. But as far as their relationship with God, it's not there. Other things take the place of their relationship with God. Then starting with chapter 5, you have the line of Seth, and these are the people that have that relationship with God. Then men begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now, is God opposed to herdsmen? Is he opposed to musicians? Is he opposed to metal workers? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But... It's a priority with these people, with other people, a priority is their relationship with God. Does everybody see that? God's not opposed to any of these. It's just that it's second or third or fourth place with people that call on the name of the Lord. It is just a means to an end. It is not the end. Now, let me show you some very interesting things. And that is, when you see Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, it's important for us to realize, and I'll get it here, that in the Bible, there's quite a few references to bronze and iron. And I don't have time to look at all these passages, but you remember when they're wandering through the wilderness and snakes and vipers are biting all the people and Moses sets up a bronze serpent and all they have to do is look and live 
And then you have various metals mentioned in Numbers chapter 21. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, when God is describing the fruitfulness of the land, and Moses is describing the kinds of things they're going to be encountered, he tells us that the land of Israel has abundance of all of these things. Then you have Joshua, materials under the ban. When they go into the land of Jericho, or the city of Jericho, there are three, there are four metals that God says are under the ban. Now these are the, these are the things that they're not to hoard to themselves. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron, which means at the time of Jericho and the children of Israel marching around the city of Jericho, these metals were very, very common. Israel probably didn't have a lot of them, but they were very, very common. Then last of all, Goliath's armor, a bronze helmet, bronze shin guards, the whole thing. By the way, the word bronze in the Hebrew is the same Hebrew word from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. So we're not looking at different words in the Hebrew, same word. Another way to view all of this is the use of iron. You have to, and, and we'll come back and look at some of these various passages, but uh, one of the things that the children of Israel encountered when they're in the process of capturing the land, Joshua chapter 17, is chariots of iron. The Philistines had, or the Canaanites had chariots of iron. Now, I don't know, and again, I'm just speculating at this point, I don't know if the entire chariot were built of iron or whether the wheels were just built of iron. Uh, you get the idea, because a chariot of iron <laughs> that'd be a pretty heavy, heavy little thing to, for a horse to carry around. And then you have other, other things there, all right? Now, let me, if I may, just describe for you the land of Israel. And we'll probably be coming back to this over and over again. The coastal plains are right here on the edge next to the Mediterranean. The next is, and you probably see the word, the Shephelah. The Shephelah are the hills, the foothills. And then you have the mountain range right up through the middle. Now the interesting thing is the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, when they captured the land, they were confined primarily to this middle mountain range. The Philistines were down here on the lowland. Then you have what is called the Rift Valley. The Rift Valley is an area right down the middle of Israel that is all under sea level. The Dead Sea is approximately 1,300 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is approximately 600 feet below sea level. Now that's kind of an interesting way to do it and then the mountain range slips up here again on the other side of the Jordan. The way to designate this, and you won't find these categories in, mentioned in the Bible, but I just do it for geographical purposes. We all know what the Transjordan is. It's over here on this side of the Jordan. And this is called the Cisjordan. You'll never see this, these two terms uh, in the Bible at all. It's just the geographical designations for the land of Israel. Another way to view this is the nation of Israel sits right there. The Muslim nations are all these areas. That's overwhelming, isn't it? I read a book years and years ago by Benjamin Netanyahu, who was the past president or prime minister of Israel. It's interesting that with the Palestinian difficulty that they're having along the, uh, the Gaza Strip, what did all of these Arab countries say to Israel? You need to give up some of your land for the Palestinians. Not one of them wanted the Palestinians in their area. That's, I just find that very interesting, all right? 
When it comes to the nation of Israel, when we compare it to the size of New York, it's approximately like that. When we compare it to the size of United States, it looks like that. When we compare it, so that we're real close to home here, when we compare it to the state of Utah, it's approximately like that. Utah is roughly 350 miles north and south, 270 miles wide. Israel, on the other hand, is right there. Israel is approximately 10% of what the state of Utah is. Not a very big area. Now, this is today's Israel. That's not the land that God gave Israel when he promised it to Abraham. It's much, much larger than that, but that's what they have to deal with today, all right? Okay, notice closely, and this is an aerial satellite, notice the area of Israel that is fertile, and notice the area of Israel that is desert. When you get down here to the desert area, it is arid. I mean really, really arid, really dry. And a couple times that I have been to Israel, we've been on what they call a, uh, a spiritual wilderness tour. And there is, there is something mystical about this area. This is the area that David was running from, was, uh, was in when he was running from Saul. An amazing area. Another thing that you might see, and this is just a different, uh, the different patterns where you see the coastal plains, the Shafela, the mountain range, and then the Rift Valley down the middle where the Jordan River runs. Another angle of it. Another angle of it. Now, for the next five minutes, let me give you a crash course, and we'll be coming back to this, all right? One of the things that uh, when you go to Israel, you'll learn about the tells. You can tell it's a tell, it swells, all right? The word tell in Arabic and in Hebrew means a mound. And what the mound looks like is something like this. You have the natural hill, then you have the Canaanite layers, because the Canaanite were there first, and then you have the Israel layer on top of that. So they would find a mound or hill, and they would build their city on top of that. Now, the interesting thing that's important to realize is uh, a city would probably last 100 years, and then it would be abandoned. And then another group would come years later and build on top of that. And then another group would come and build on top of that. Uh, so that's the way a schematics of a tell. Does everybody understand this? If you don't, just raise your hand. We'll be coming back to this. The interesting thing is from the bottom to the top, you're probably looking at a thousand plus years where all the sediment builds up over the years, which is, you know, just fascinating. Now, another thing to keep in mind is what determined the location of a tell where a city is built? Well, there are four things to keep in mind. Number one, was it defensible? It sat way out in the middle, but it's an elevated area an army going up would have a little bit more difficulty than people shooting down at it. You understand that. Another thing that made a tell feasible is it need to be near a water supply. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that in the future. Another thing is that it need to be near arable land. What do we mean by arable land? Land that could be cultivated around the tell. This is where the people lived, but they had arable or cultivated land around it, and that's what they lived on. The last thing is it needed to be near a trade route, 
or some sort of a road. Uh, let me go on. It would be nice if it were nice like this. This is what we would hope, but this is the reality. When they start digging, one of the things they discover is that a city is destroyed. It's just a hodgepodge, you understand? That, this is where the challenge of archeology span comes from. And that is everything is not in a nice sequence like that. It's more like this, where they destroyed part of the city, then they built on top of it. You get the idea, don't you? Now, let me give you an illustration real quick. Let me mention three tells in the nation of Israel right now. This is the tell of Megiddo. Uh, Megiddo is located right here, and this is the Jezreel Valley. One interesting little tidbit, and I noticed this the very first time I ever went to Israel, and I'm sure many, many people have uh, observed this. Napoleon once said, that's a perfect battleground. And this, of course, is the area where the Battle of Armageddon, the final battle, is going to take place. Megiddo's here. Nazareth is up there. As Jesus is growing up, living in Nazareth, you know what's coming, don't you? He is overlooking the valley where the final battle is taking place. I've always found that significant. And when you're sitting on this, there's a cliff right there next to Nazareth, and you can look all the way across and see that valley. By the way, you see that runway right there? First time I went to Israel in 1972, those series of runways were there because I was standing on Mount Carmel and I looked down and I asked my gu the guide that we had, uh, tell me about those runways. He said, well, that's where our, that's where our military, uh, you know, that's, that's where our Air Force is stationed. The next time I went to Israel, those runways weren't there. So I asked the guard, what happened to the guide? What happened to the runways? He just smiled. <laughs> They've been moved. <laughs> Huh? Are they underground? They're underground now. You remember when uh, you remember when Jimmy Carter was making an arrangement with uh, the people of Israel? You know one of the things the United States had to pay for? Underground runways. The planes in Israel do not land on runways. They land in a mountain very similar to an aircraft carrier. And then when they're ready to take off, they come out of the mountain and they're catapulted out. That's how they protect their runways. It's interesting. The, the guide won't tell me that, but I found that out later. Now, here's another, here's another uh, tell. Tell Arad. That is situated way down here. It's one of the cities the nation of Israel captured when they were in the process of wandering in the wilderness. Another tell is the Tel Hatzor. We're going to look at all of these in the process. And this is way up north. That's another angle of it. And it is north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very prominent city, and we'll see that. But the question I have for you is this. Here are these three tells. These are area photographs of the way they are right now. The question I have is this. What percentage of these tells have been properly excavated? <laughs> properly excavated. That's the key such as tiny little percentage of these tells have been properly excavated, what little bit of information we have about these tells, we're trying to prove their validity of the word of God along the process. Now, have we found some good evidence? Yes. 
But depending on the archaeologist, if they are not sympathetic to the Bible, what happens? They just toss the stuff aside. Oh, this doesn't fit our scheme. This doesn't fit our scheme. That's the problem with archaeology. It is an evolving science. One more thing. This is Jericho. Uh, one of the early archaeologists was a woman named Kathleen Kenyon. And she did a lot of her work in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. She wrote several books on Jericho. Now look at that tell. Does it seem organized? <clears throat> of course, you know that Jericho is right by the Dead Sea. It is the lowest city in elevation of any city in the world because it's probably at a thousand feet below sea level. It is also said to probably be the oldest city in the world that has been ever, ever been excavated. But here it is now. These are different shots of Jericho. I remember the first time I ever went to Jericho and I was expecting all kinds of amazing things because you know the story, the walls fell down flat. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna find, we're gonna see the evidence there. And the way my professor described it when we were overlooking it was one word. And that is the word, it's been butchered. Because there was no proper scheme. There was no right and wrong way to do it. They just got in there and did whatever. Archaeology has come a long, long way compared to when they did this. So, with that, and I don't know how I did it, but we did cover as much as I wanted to. Let's do it again next week. Hey, thanks for your attention. Uh, next week, we're going to look at uh, Exodus, the Exodus, and the wanderings in the wilderness and stuff like that and see where all that comes from.